Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities. This update covers the period from October 3rd to October 30th. So let's get started. On October 5th, the Securities and Exchange Commission's Fixed Income Market Structure Advisory Committee met to discuss lessons learned from COVID-19-related volatility in the fixed income markets. Committee members were overall optimistic, saying that bond markets generally functioned and proved resilient with significant help from the Federal Reserve. Liquidity intervention in the corporate bond market also calmed volatility in other fixed income markets, such as municipal securities markets. Bond ETF markets, which have grown significantly since the financial crisis, also were said to have helped stability and continue to trade at record volumes, even when liquidity was challenged in the underlying bond markets. The committee also approved a recommendation to the SEC asking it to create a clear definition of electronic trading and consistent standards for electronic trading volume reporting. Sonali Thyssen, head of fixed income market structure at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, said the recommendation was more important than ever, given that electronic trading accelerated during the pandemic. Fellow committee member Gilbert Garcia of Garcia Hamilton Associates said electronic trading emerged as a hero. Committee members also discussed challenges for fixed income markets in the future, including uncertainty surrounding future stimulus packages, vaccine developments, and the upcoming election. Given that the Federal Reserve's intervention was unprecedented, committee members expressed concerns that this may not be the norm in future crises. Colorado Para CIO Amy McGarity cautioned that the Fed's stabilizing intervention limits conclusions about the ability of the fixed income markets that can be drawn from this crisis. Committee members also suggested the SEC consider ways to encourage liquidity from sources other than traditional dealers. On October 8th, CII sent a letter to the Securities Exchange Commission asking that they reject NASDAQ's proposal to allow companies to raise capital by conducting primary direct floor listings. Unlike previous direct listings, which allowed only existing investors to sell shares, these listings permit companies to issue new shares and sell them to public investors in a single large transaction on the first day of trading. Listeners of my podcast might recall that on September 25th, the SEC ruled that it would keep a stay in place and conduct a full commission review of a similar proposal by the New York Stock Exchange. The ruling came after CII sent a petition to the SEC requesting a review by the full commission and a brief in opposition to lifting the stay. CII's October 8th letter says NASDAQ's proposed rule change may not be consistent with the provisions of the federal securities laws, which require that stock exchange rules prohibit fraudulent and manipulative acts and protect investors in the public interest. Our letter states that the NASDAQ proposal falls short because it would expand direct listings without first addressing the Byzantine and costly system of share ownership, i.e. proxy plumbing. As a result, share ownership would be difficult to trace to a registration statement in connection with the direct listing, and therefore a directly listed company could 
use the lack of traceable shares as a defense in certain securities fraud actions. Our letter also argues that direct listings may degrade corporate governance practices by facilitating the use of dual-class stock structures with unequal voting rights, since direct listings may allow companies to sidestep governance checks that usually precede a traditional IPO. On October 12, CII and eight of its members filed an amicus brief in the D.C. Federal District Court. The brief supports a lawsuit filed by Institutional Shareholder Services challenging the Securities Exchange Commission's July 2020 rules to regulate proxy advisory firms. CII and its members assert in the amicus brief that there is no legal or economic basis for the commission to classify proxy advisors as proxy solicitors, which makes them subject to onerous filing rules. Also, the conditions that proxy advisors have to meet to qualify for an exemption from the solicitation rules may impair their independence and harm investors. Among those conditions is agreeing to disseminate and subsidize companies' rebuttals of critical voting advice, which may violate the First Amendment. The Commission changed course significantly by reinterpreting solicit to encompass proxy voting advice and failed to provide a reasoned explanation for that change. This unexplained inconsistency means the SEC's actions were arbitrary and capricious and, as legal precedent shows, unlawful. The amicus brief also states that the SEC failed to provide reliable evidence indicating that the existing proxy advisor communications with their institutional investor clients present a significant risk to investor protection that justifies regulatory action. The commission began by assuming the prevalence of material errors in proxy voting advice and predicated its proposal to amend the rules on its existence. CII sent the SEC multiple letters showing that the number of asserted factual or analytical errors was overstated and that many of the purported analytical errors were actually disagreements on methodology, not errors. The Commission's failure to address the fact that a key assumption motivating its regulatory action was contradicted by the evidence establishes that it did not examine all relevant factors in its decision. The rules also contradict the SEC's goal of providing investors a robust discussion of views and violates the federal securities law's prohibition against regulations that impose an unnecessary or inappropriate burden on competition. The rules provisions also impose a chilling effect on proxy advisors by encouraging to the extent feasible that they conduct pre-dissemination reviews for companies that provide feedback and by increasing their liability for alleged misstatements or omissions and proxy advice under Rule 14A9. Both of these factors increase the cost of implementing the rules to the extent they outweigh their benefits, and they provide a disincentive for other firms to enter the proxy voting business. CII was joined by the California Public Employees Retirement System, the California State Teachers Retirement System, the California State Controller, CFA Institute, the Colorado Public Employees Retirement Association, the New York City Comptroller, CTW Investment Group, and the Los Angeles County Employees Retirement Association in filing the amicus brief. The brief concludes by asking the court to hold that the proxy advisor rules are contrary to law and arbitrary and capricious and to set aside their adoption. On October 15th, for the first time in 40 years, the Securities Exchange Commission imposed a stiff penalty 
on a company for having insufficient internal controls after its executives were found to have benefited from possession of material non-public information. The case involves the board of Endeavor, an oil refiner that in 2015 and 2016 authorized the stock repurchase of up to $2 billion, but only in compliance with a corporate policy that prohibited buybacks while the company was in possession of material non-public information. In February 2018, Endeavor CEO instructed the company to enter into a Rule 10b-5-1 plan, under which over several weeks it repurchased $250 million worth of shares at prices between $97 and $103 per share. At the same time, the buybacks were initiated and the Rule 10b-5-1 plan was approved the CEOs of Endeavor and Marathon Oil had paused advanced takeover discussion. Shortly thereafter, they once again began discussing a potential merger, which ultimately resulted in a deal at $150 per share announced April 30th, 2018. The SEC ruled that the company's internal controls were insufficient and the company failed to appreciate that the probability of Marathon's acquisition of Endeavor was sufficiently high at the time as to be material to investors. The SEC slapped the company with a $20 million penalty, which it agreed to pay without admitting wrongdoing. In commenting on the SEC's penalty, the law firm of Cleary Gottlieb called the case a wake-up call that the SEC will be monitoring such activity, scrutinizing companies' controls and decision-making when the buyback coincides with market-moving events, and bringing cases with potentially meaningful penalties, even when there's no finding that the company violated the federal securities laws anti-fraud provisions by actually trading on the basis of material non-public information. The law firm Davis Polk stated that the novel theory in this first of its kind case highlights the need for policies and procedures around stock buyback authorizations and the entry into 10b-5-1 plans, including procedures a company needs to follow to determine that it is not in possession of material non-public information when it enters into a 10b-5-1 buyback plan. On October 16th, the Securities and Exchange Commission in a three to two vote approved amendments that relax the rules that auditors use to determine if they have a conflict of interest with the corporate client. Uh, the new rules address circumstances when affiliates of an audit client and entities under common control are involved, certain student loans and de minimis consumer loans exist, and inadvertent independence violations arise as a result of a merger or acquisition transaction. First proposed in December and commented on by CII in March, these new rules also reduce the number of years that companies intending to go public or register with the SEC have to show that they complied with the commission's auditor independence rules. Previously, companies needed to show three years of compliance. The look back requirement under the new rule is now one year. SEC Chair Jay Clayton stated that the reach of our rules, particularly in the cases of a broad diversified investment portfolio and certain consumer finance transactions, is operating to limit auditor choice, which in turn may adversely affect the important arm's length nature of the issuer-auditor relationship. The new rules will focus 
audit clients, audit committees, and auditors on areas that may threaten an auditor's objectivity and impartiality. They will also improve competition and audit quality by increasing the number of qualified audit firms from which an issuer can choose. SEC Commissioners Allison Heron-Lee and Carolyn Crenshaw voted against the rules and referenced CII's comment letter in their dissent. They said the final rules replace a clear standard with one that provides auditors greater discretion when assessing their own independence and presents greater risk of mistaken or inconsistent application of that standard. In addition, the descending commissioners took issue with the absence of a mechanism that provides the SEC and investors with visibility into how effectively auditors are making these assessments. The amendments will become effective 180 days after publication in the Federal Register. On October 21st, four Senate Democrats sent a letter to Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Jay Clayton expressing concern about the Commission's proposed rule to amend Exchange Act Rule 13F-1 and Form 13F to increase the reporting threshold for filing a 13F holding report from $100 million to $350 billion. The senators asserted that the proposal would eliminate a significant source of transparency in the U.S. stock market, impair small and medium-sized companies' understanding of their investor base, and empower activist investors. If you're a regular listener of these podcasts, you might recall that CII issued a comment letter in September raising similar concerns about the proposed rule. On October 27th, Bloomberg reported that the SEC has decided to shelve this controversial rulemaking proposal. On October 29th, Institutional Shareholder Services filed a memorandum in opposition to the National Association of Manufacturers' motion to intervene as a party in the lawsuit that ISS has filed against the Securities and Exchange Commission that I referenced earlier in this podcast. If a court permits the National Association of Manufacturers to intervene in the case, the association could potentially seek an appeal if the SEC loses the case in D.C. Federal District Court and decides not to pursue an appeal of their own in the D.C. Circuit Court. In the October 29th filing, ISS asserted that the National Association of Manufacturers motion does not comply with federal civil procedure rules because it was filed too late and it lacked standing to intervene because it did not identify any member of its association that suffered a specific injury. ISS also asserts that the National Association of Manufacturers alludes to errors in proxy advisor research, but identifies no specific instance in which one of NAM's members were concretely injured as a result of a purported ISS error in its research. On October 30th, United States Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Tom Carper of Delaware, Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, and Mark Warner of Virginia announced the formation of a working group to develop legislative proposals and conduct oversight 
focused on fundamentally reforming corporate governance. The press release states that over the last 30 years, corporate profits have surged while the portion shared with labor has declined, resulting in soaring inequality. The COVID-19 pandemic now ravaging the country has underscored the urgency of reforming corporate practices that leave corporations with little to no savings, workers living paycheck to paycheck, and supply chains outsourced to the lowest bidder. The Senator stated that for far too long, many companies have disregarded broad-based growth and put short-term profits ahead of workers, fueling inequality and restricting opportunities for the poor, for young people, and for people of color. Short-term financial pressure often pushes corporations to forego necessary long-term investments, ignore the threat of climate change, and concentrate opportunity in ways that exclude too many of our communities. The senators also state that we will work together on ways we can fundamentally reform corporate governance in America. The press release also notes that the senators have each worked on proposals to hold American corporations accountable and create an economy that provides prosperity for all Americans. For example, the press release notes that Senator Warren has introduced legislation to transform corporate America, hold corporate executives personally accountable when their companies commit crimes, and empower workers and other stakeholders, not just shareholders. Her Stop Wall Street Looting Act would reform the private equity industry, and she's been a leading voice in pressing corporations to address their role in fueling the climate crisis. The press release also states that as the top Democrat on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, Senator Carper has conducted rigorous oversight on the influence of major oil companies in federal rulemaking, helped to reach a voluntary greenhouse gas emissions deal between auto companies in California in defiance of the Trump administration's federal rollback, and introduced legislation that would hold companies accountable to clean up their pollution. Press release also states that Senator Baldwin has introduced legislation to give workers a seat on corporate boards and restrict buybacks through her Reward Work Act and address abuses by activist hedge funds in her Brokaw Act. Finally, the press release states that Senator Warner has introduced the Workforce Investment Disclosure Act to require companies to disclose investments in workers, urge the Securities Exchange Commission to require disclosure of companies' human capital management policies, and has pushed for better reporting of non-financial indicators covering a company's environmental, social, and governance practices. That completes my corporate governance financial regulation update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I.org. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. 
The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.